welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning and uh, welcome along to Gateway. So glad you're here with us. Um, If you happen to be new, um, we've been in a series now for uh, a couple of months Um, probably bitten off more than I can chew to be truthful in the book of Isaiah, but we're making our way through. Um, The first few weeks we spent in the first of a series of concentric circles that make up Isaiah's prophecy. The uh, chapters 1 through 12 are really Isaiah speaking to the community of faith uh, under the symbol of a city uh, of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. And so he's prophesying to that particular people. Uh, Last week I mentioned that the second concentric circle out from chapters 13 through about chapter 23, uh, Isaiah moves out to um, Judah's neighbors and he prophesies in a number of oracles or burdens that he has to about 10 of Judah's neighbors. Then last week, we looked at chapters 24 to 27, where the circle goes out even further, and Isaiah starts to speak to uh, the, the earth, and he takes on what I called a very eschatological tone. He really talks about the end of the age, so he's prophesying really about what will transpire at the end of the age, and we talked about the tale of two cities. He talked about two communities under the image of two cities, one city unnamed, the other the city of Zion, and those two cities represented two communities. Um, so in our study, we, really, we looked at chapters 1 to 12 in a little bit of detail, chapters 13 to 23, we just basically jumped, looked at chapters 24, 27 in a little bit more detail, um, I'm, I'm making another jump this morning. And I'm jumping over quite a considerable amount of material. I'm jumping from chapters 28 right through chapter 39. If you want an exceedingly brief and truthfully probably quite inadequate overview of the material that I'm missing, I would say that chapters 28 to, 20 to 33 outline the folly of trusting the surrounding neighbors for security and help in, terms of, in times of stress and danger. So Isaiah's prophesying to the, again to Judah saying, don't trust in, in your neighbors. They are going to let you down. Put your trust in the only place where it won't be let down in Yahweh himself. And then chapters 34 through 39 give us a view of the results of trusting God rather than trusting the nations. The last few chapters of that portion, um, chapters 36 to 39, consider the life and times of the king Hezekiah. Hezekiah was, for the most part, a good king. Um, He, interestingly enough, faces almost almost the exact same situation that his grandfather Ahaz had faced a number of years earlier. They are in danger of being uh, overrun by enemies and the key question is, where are you going to put your trust? Ahab turned to the Assyrians. He turned away from Yahweh thinking, I can do this if I can make some political alliances and, and, uh, uh, I can, and I can work the players. I think we can get ourselves out of this situation. Well, of course, he didn't. He failed miserably. Hezekiah faces exactly the same situation his grandfather faced. In fact, the people that Ahaz 
turn to are now the ones that are threatening to overrun uh, Hezekiah's rule and kingdom. Um, Hezekiah trusts where his grandfather did not, and for the most part, those chapters are a bright note in Judah's history. But at the final part of this chapter, there's an ominous note. Chapter 39, Hezekiah trusts God and God deals with the Assyrians. He then falls ill and has a near-death experience. The king of Babylon sends some emissaries to Hezekiah once he's recovered to wish him well. Now, truthfully, it's more than just um, the Babylonians being nice. They are trying to cobble together an alliance that will overthrow Assyria. And so on the pretense of talking to Hezekiah about his illness, they are are trying to get support. Um, in chapter 39, verse 2, it says, Hezekiah appreciated this. He appreciated that the Babylonians had set these emissaries, took the envoys from Babylon on a tour of the palace, showing them his treasure house full of silver, gold, spices, and perfumes. He took them into his jeweled rooms too and opened to them all his treasures, everything. Now, the implication seems to be that he should have been somewhat more guarded and circumspect in what he showed them. Um, it's kind of a little difficult to see what he, if he's done anything sort of deliberately wrong here, but the implication is clearly that he should have been more circumspect. Isaiah, when he hears about the fact that Hezekiah has shown the Babylonians everything, comes to him and prophesies. And he says to him, the time is coming when everything you have, all the treasures stored up by your fathers will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left and some of your own sons will become slaves, yes, eunuchs, in the palace of the king of Babylon. So we come to the end of chapter 39 and the beginning of chapter 40. Most of us, when we are simply reading through Isaiah, have no idea that the gap between 39 and 40 is considerable. Chronologically, there's a gap of between 150 and 200 years before, uh, between the end of chapter 39 and the beginning of chapter 40. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that people divide Isaiah into two sections, chapter 1 to 39 and chapters 40 through 66. The context and content of chapters 40 onwards are very, very different than the first 39 chapters. Now, in order to kind of move our way into the second section of Isaiah, I need to do a little bit of history in terms of what happened in those intervening years, what happened between chapter 39 and the beginning of chapter 40. So let's, let's do that history lesson, okay? Firstly, in Judah. Hezekiah dies about five years after the end of chapter 39, and his son Manasseh comes to the throne. Now, Manasseh was... Um, to put it mildly, a disaster. He was an exceptionally wicked man. According tr to tradition, he was the one that actually was responsible for Isaiah's death. Uh, sick and tired of this prophetic individual, he had him stuffed inside a hollow log and then got his men to saw the log in two. Hmm. After Manasseh, we have a series of kings. Ammon, who was wicked, Josiah, who was a bright note in what was a definitely downward trajectory, followed by Jehoahaz, who was evil, Jehoiakim, who was evil, Jehoiachin, who was evil, and Zedekiah, who was evil. So you can see the moral, spiritual trajectory is downhill all the way. So that's what's happening in Judah. 
Secondly, what's happening in the world at large? Well, the nation of Babylon now becomes the dominant world power. End of chapter 39, they were cobbling together an alliance to attack Assyria that had been the dominant power for about 500 years. And in that intervening period, they attacked them and overcame them. They defeated Assyria in 607 BC. In 598 BC, Babylon came and decided they would have Jerusalem as well. And they besieged Jerusalem, conquered the city, and took away about 20,000 people captives. That, by the way, is often called by um, historians the first deportation. Included in that deportation were men like Daniel and his three friends. Uh, Ezekiel also was carried away in that deportation. Zedekiah was left as a puppet king over Judah. He reigns in that uh, in that role for about 11 years, but during that 11 years, there are constant plans and rumors of revolt by Judah and the surrounding nations against Babylon, and he planned one too many re revolts, and the Babylonians decided that they'd finished with this little upstart, and in 587, the Babylonian army returned and destroyed Jerusalem completely, both city and temple, and carried away basically everybody except the poorest of the poor. So we have then the second de deportation. Now, for those of you who have read Jeremiah, Jeremiah is speaking in the middle of those deportations and around the fall of Jerusalem. He had lived and prophesied through that era. As he finishes his prophetic words, he says, you will go into Babylon where you will be in captivity for 70 years. Now, all of this occurs between chapter 39 and chapter 40 of Isaiah. So this dark Babylonian abyss lies between these two chapters. There is an experience of great trauma between these two chapters, the loss of land, the loss of kingship, and especially the loss of temple. And it had created an incredible sense of dislocation, of grief, of confusion among this now captive people. So as Isaiah 40 opens, they have been in Babylonian captivity for nearly 70 years. The time is nearly up. As you might have imagined, people responded to the captivity in various ways. There were a group of uh, people from Judah who had decided to forget the past and to concentrate on future possibilities. They couldn't see any reversal of their captivity on the horizon, so they determined that spiritual alienation didn't need to be a hindrance to their economic advancement. Babylon actually provided them with opportunities for economic advancement, and, and they had taken them. And significant numbers of the captivity had assimilated and for all intents and purposes were functioning like Babylonians. They had, in fact, forsaken Yahweh and they had adopted, uh, adopted gods out of the Babylonian pantheon as their own. There were some, of course, who, as in any age, had decided not to look either to the future or the past. They just simply lived in the present moment in what we call hedonism. Eat, drink, and be as merry as you can, given the circumstances, for tomorrow we die. There were significant numbers of people who were dominated by their memories of the past. They were confused and paralyzed, really, by cynicism and despair, and yet at the same time were trying to be faithful as they could to their religious heritage and traditions. This was difficult because they no longer had a center. There was no land, there was no king, and most difficult of all, there was no temple. 
Their experience of covenant relationship with Yahweh had been cultivated for hundreds of years within the structure of those institutions, kingship and temple particularly. It seemed to them that these things were inseparable. They were so interrelated that if one fell, then it seemed the others must crash as well. Now, what Isaiah is trying to do, as Isaiah 40 opens up, is he's trying to get these people to understand that while covenant relationship with Yahweh had been cultivated within those structures of kingship, land, and temple, it wasn't dependent on them. And that God's purposes with this people didn't stop with the destruction of the temple and the loss of their land. They would have to embrace the very difficult idea that actually God was even behind this loss. Isaiah knew that God was much bigger than the temple, the city, and the land. The question is, would the faith of this incredibly dislocated, displaced community survive the heaving cross currents of their own inner doubts and questionings along with the external pressure that the Babylonian culture was putting on them to assimilate and to make them become Babylonians? They are struggling, as you might well imagine, and it's evidenced by the question that they actually, uh, that Isaiah quotes of them in Isaiah 40, 27 where he says to this people, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? The temptation of hopelessness and despair that plagued Israel in the aftermath of the Babylonian captivity led to the twin doubts that permanently and universally afflict people who are going through seasons of difficulty, of stress, of grief and of loss. These seasons nearly always result in two questions being asked. Does God know about me? Does God care? It's a question regarding his love. And then secondly, can he do anything about it? That's a question that concerns his ability, his power. The imperfect verbs used in chapter 27 underline the perennial nature of these questions. This isn't a question in a one-off moment of, of confusion. This is a perennial question that's being asked. It could read, why do you keep on saying? Why do you continue to say, my way is hidden from God, he doesn't see me, he doesn't care? These people are struggling to interpret God's silence in a time of considerable testing. God's apparent inaction in the midst of pain and loss and suffering. You know, the cries of the book of Lamentation actually reflect their thoughts and, and doubts. Lamentations chapter one, verse nine, Jeremiah says, she has no comforter. Oh Lord, behold my affliction. Could you see there's no comfort? Zion, uh, chapter one, verse 17, Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. Chapter one, verse 21, they have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. The cry is, is there anybody that can help? Is there anybody that cares? And you know, there's probably no one who hasn't been through an intense time of suffering and loss who hasn't been fronted, confronted with those kinds of questions. Do you care? And if you do, why don't you do something about this? So we come to chapter 40, and the silence has broken. And it announces, the prophet announces that a decisive turning point has been reached in the life of this broken, humiliated, captive com community. 
Not only is the context of chapter 40 quite different than the previous 39 chapters, the content is massively different as well. That's why, by the way, a lot of scholars say there's different authors. You've got a gap of 200 years, the context and the content is so different. There must have been someone who picked up the Isianic tradition in the same way that somebody picked up the Samuel tradition and wrote to Samuel, because 1 Samuel is written by Samuel, then he dies, 2 Samuel is written. A lot of scholars say the same is true with Isaiah. We have a different author. And if you read anything about Isaiah, you'll sometimes hear people talking about Deutero-Isaiah or 2nd Isaiah. They're talking about the fact that another author may have written this portion. Well, I, I talked about that in the introductory message. I don't plan to repeat what I said there. The message from chapter 40, though, onward changes from mostly condemnation in the previous chapters to mostly comfort from now on. It moves from a message of impending punishment to a message of present pardon. It moves from the bad news of judgment to the good news of justification and deliverance. Now, classic Isaiah, even in the midst of the bad news, there were moments of good news. And even in the midst of the good news in the second portion, there are moments of bad news. That's the way it works. One of my favorite movies, and I know that a lot of you have seen it too, is the movie Shawshank Redemption. And there's a powerful and very moving moment in that movie where the hero, Andy Dufresne, locks himself and barricades himself in the prison office and then proceeds to broadcast across the prison loudspeaker system Mozart's Figaro, uh, much to the sweet relief of the fellow prisoners. And I I wanted just to show you that clip to remind some of you who have seen it for those of you who haven't, to kind of get in on it. The opening words of Isaiah chapter 40 are operatic words of hope sung to a people in the midst of captivity, singing in a way that made them stop and listen and look and for a brief moment for some and for a permanent moment, as it were, for others, things altered and changed. Listen to the words. Verses 1 through 2. Remember, these people have been in captivity for 70 years. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. These are words sung into the people's captivity, intended to break the tide of doubt and hopelessness and to replace them with a sense of hope and the birth of a fresh commitment to Yahweh. Um, The offer of comfort here is not to be mistaken for some kind of mollycoddling. Isaiah is not saying to them, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Uh, This isn't the trite platitudes that Jeremiah had spoken about in Jeremiah 6.14 when he said, they treat the wounds of my people slightly and lightly, saying, all's well, all's well, when all is not well. That's not what Isaiah is doing. The, the, word, the English word comfort comes from a Latin word fortis, from which we get our English ideas of fort, fortification, fortitude, or to fortify. To comfort a person is to put strength into them, to put steel into their hearts, to make them hopeful once again. 
To comfort from the Hebrew actually literally means to cause to breathe again. And the picture is that of a person who's been sobbing so hard that they are having trouble catching their breath. Israel has been suffering for her sins so greatly that it's, she's out of breath, spiritually speaking. And so the prophet comes and into this situation of bleak captivity starts to try and put hope and strength into their soul to get them to breathe again. Now you can imagine perhaps some of the more discerning among them saying, well, how can we possibly be hopeful? We are here rightly. We are here because we are being judged for our sins. And the prophet anticipates that response and he says, the full measure of punishment has been exacted. Your iniquity has been pardoned. And in verse two, he says, you've received from the Lord's hand double for your sins. That literally, by the way, reads, your sins have been folded double. The, the idea here is not that God has given twice the amount of punishment to you. He's doubled the amount of punishment to you. It's, it's, a, it's a reference to something that used to transpire in the ancient East. In the ancient East, when a man went bankrupt, a notice of his debts was posted on the city gate, and everybody could see what he owed, and he would be publicly humiliated. A loving relative or friend might come along and decide to pay his debts for him. And if that happened, the notice was then folded in half. It was doubled over. His debts were paid. Nobody could see them anymore. They were doubled over, closed shut, and his debt is removed. This is what Isaiah is referring to. He's saying, your debt has been doubled over. It's been folded double. God has forgiven you. It's time now to see that God is about to do something completely new. And so in verses three through five, he says, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, rough ground shall be leveled, the rugged places plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. What he's saying there is the wilderness and the desert are symbolic of your sense of complete, utter, absolute desolation. But in the midst of this desolation, start to prepare a way because the glory of the Lord, which was so badly lost to them over the time of their uh, captivity and prior to that to the destruction, in the destruction of Jerusalem, is about to return. Getting a road ready, by the way, for a, a, a dignitary was something that they would have regularly seen and probably would have had to participate in many times. If a dignitary was coming, the slaves would be gathered up, they would clear out the road, get all the rocks out of the way, make everything tidy. They were aware of that idea. Isaiah is tapping into that and saying, get your hearts ready. Prepare your hearts ready, he's coming. Then in verses nine through 11, he says, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. There are two pictures in this that Isaiah wants them to see and both of them feature God's arm. Throughout Israel's history, the idea of God's arm 
was a symbol for them that Yahweh would move on their behalf and move in power. What that's tapping into is the Exodus story, where, for example, in Exodus 15, 16, it says, terror and dread will fall on them by the power of your arm. They will be still as a stone. And then later, Isaiah is actually in Isaiah 63, 12, says, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand and who divided the waters before them. This idea of God's, arm, the sleeves rolled up as God working on their behalf. Now, Isaiah uses two illustrations in this portion, and both of them involve God's arm. Both of these illustrations are deliberately designed to speak to and provide an answer for their two haunting questions. Does God see and care? Can he do anything about it? The first image is that of a divine warrior. God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. In this illustration, God is emphasizing, or the prophet is emphasizing God's power and his might. And he's saying, he's able. He's got all the necessary power to do what he promises to do. The second image is that of a caring shepherd. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his, the lambs with his arm. This speaks to their concern that God doesn't know and doesn't care. He's aiming his illustrations at their questions. He speaks to their concerns that God doesn't know, doesn't care, and maybe if he does, he can't do anything to overcome. Question, how will these people respond to this operatic note of hope that is sung into the midst of their captivity? Perhaps some of them will be like the prisoners in Shawshank who lifted their heads and listened to the beautiful music. When it finishes, they simply sigh and get about their hopeless prison lives. Perhaps this captive people might hear these beautiful words of comfort, but then allow any seeds of hope that might be stirred by them to be overwhelmed by this flood of cynical questions that for them seem to be a more realistic assessment of the situation they faced. And if I could put it in words, they're probably saying, well, if he's that powerful and he's that willing as you say he is, how come he let Jerusalem be sacked in the first place? How come he couldn't save his own temple? Why should we hope now? Listen, look around you. Given the daunting power of our Babylonian masters is, and their gods, the pantheon of their gods, how realistic is it for us to believe that God can even accomplish our deliverance? You know, it was, it was easy to believe in the simplicity of our Jerusalem bubble. But given the complexities of the cosmos with all its celestial host and the pantheon of gods that we've been exposed to for the last seven decades, we aren't even sure that there's one God who created this and who controls this or anything else. Now, it doesn't take much discernment or imagination to see that those are still the kinds of questions that people ask, statements that people make in the face of incredibly difficult and testing situations. And I've heard people say, you know, Don, it was easy to believe when I was younger and I was in the Christian bubble of my Christian family. But now I'm faced with university level questions and my kindergarten level faith just doesn't cut the mustard. And I really don't know in this pluralistic culture that we now live in that Yahweh is the one true God and that he can work in my circumstances. It's, it's a scene that's very, very up to date. So Isaiah starts what we call a, a passage that, that we call a, a disputation. 
chapters, um, sorry, verses 12 through 31 of Isaiah 40 is in the form of what we call a disputation. Now, a disputation is an argument put forward to counter a position that somebody has taken. Some of you from academic circles, you'll know that a disputation refers to an exercise consisting of a formal debate or an oral defense of, of your thesis or a thesis. So Isaiah sets himself now to address the questions that these people are perpetually plagued by. And he argues with the doubts that are impeding them from believing and embracing this message of hope that's been sung into their midst. He, he doesn't deal with their doubts in a trite, facile way. He doesn't say, oh, what you guys need is more faith. If only you had a bit more faith. You know, I tell you what, when you're in the midst of incredibly testing circumstances, the, really, the very last person that you want to see is somebody who comes to you and says, you know what, you need more faith. You know what, you need a doctor. That's the very last thing you need, isn't it? It doesn't help you in any way. Isaiah honors the integrity of their questions and he meets them where they are. He takes their intellectual and existential questions and doubts and he takes them seriously. In characteristic disputational style, Isaiah draws his audience into this debate with a series of vivid rhetorical questions. And this next portion of Isaiah 40 reminds you of, of the passage in Job, chapter 38, verse 40 through to 41, where God turns up and, and starts to question Job. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades? Can you send out lightnings? Does the hawk fly by your wisdom? And on and on and on it goes, question after question after question. Isaiah does this too, verses 12 through 17. Who else has held the oceans in his hand and measured off the heavens with his ruler? Who else knows the weight of all the earth and weighs the mountains and the hills? Who can advise the spirit of the Lord or be his teacher or give him counsel? He has, uh, has he ever needed anyone's advice? Did he need instruction as to what's right and best? No. For all the peoples of the world are nothing in comparison with him. They are but a drop in the bucket, dust on the scales. He picks up the islands as though they had no weight at all. All of Lebanon's forests do not contain sufficient fuel to consume a sacrifice large enough for, uh, to honor him. Nor are all its animals enough to offer to our God. All the nations are as nothing to him. In his eyes they are less than nothing, mere emptiness and froth. So Isaiah starts to speak. Remember the two questions. Does he care? Can he do anything? And Isaiah's directing his disputation toward the position that they have taken. The appeal here is to the largeness and the wonder of creation, all of which is seen as very small in relation to Yahweh. To contemplate one who is so massive as to be able to hold the oceans in the palm of his hand and so sovereign that he can weigh the mountains and measure the heavens is to lift their minds to the one who is easily capable of returning his captive people to their homeland. Isaiah is seeking to clarify and magnify their image of who God is. You know, years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book, Your God is Too Small. Interestingly, somebody this week actually put that book in my tray, which I thought, well, good timing, whoever you were. You know, the bigger God is, the smaller our troubles are. 
That's what Isaiah's trying to do. Your questions make God so small. He's the one who holds the oceans in his hand and who can weigh the mountains. In verse 13 and 14 of that passage, by the way, Isaiah states that God doesn't need to take counsel from anybody else. This is a not-so-subtle dig at the Babylonian pantheon and creator myths. In Babylonian mythology, the creator god Marduk couldn't proceed without consulting another god, Ea who was the all-wise one. He had to consult him to get wisdom to create, and then in creating, he had to overcome opposing forces. Isaiah is saying, Yahweh didn't need any outsider to give him wisdom, and he is unopposed when he creates. Perhaps there were some who were listening to Isaiah, and they were thinking, you know what, Isaiah, I'm not concerned with Babylonian gods. I'm I'm really not interested in spiritual things particularly. It's not their gods that bother me. It's their spears and their bows and their arrows and their chariots. It's their mighty armies and their ruthless rulers. It's flesh and blood that bothers me, Isaiah, not spiritual rivals. Uh, And I don't think anything's going to change. And Isaiah counters, all the peoples of the world are nothing in comparison to him. They are but a drop in the bucket, dust on the scales. He picks up the islands as though they had no weight at all. Don't you worry about either their gods or their flesh and blood. Yahweh has this under control. In verses 18 through 26, Isaiah throws the spotlight back onto Yahweh's rivals. He theoretically invites nominations for a God comparable to Yahweh. Is there anybody that compares with me? And the message translation reads, so who even comes close to being like God? To whom or to what can you compare him? Some no God idol? Ridiculous. It's made in a workshop, cast in bronze, given a thin veneer of gold and draped with silver filigree. Or perhaps someone will select a fine wood, olive wood, say. That won't rot. And then hire a woodcarver to make a no-god, giving special care to its base so it won't tip over. Incredibly, incredible irony. Have you not been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these stories all your life? Don't you understand the foundation of all things? God sits high above the round ball of earth. The people look like mere ants. He stretches out the skies like a canvas. Yes, like a tent canvas to live under. He ignores what all the princes say and do. The rulers of earth count for nothing. Princes and rulers don't amount to much, like seeds barely rooted, just sprouted, they shrivel when God blows on them. Like flecks of chaff, they're gone with the wind. So who is like me? Who holds a candle to me, says the Holy Spirit. Look at the night skies. Do you think, who do you think made all this? Who marches this army of stars out each night, counts them off, calls each by name? So magnificent, so powerful, and never overlooks a single one. Isaiah is scathing in his mockery of the gods of Babylon. He says, listen, once they're made, they have to take special care to fix the bases so they won't totter and fall over. A little later in Isaiah, he says, they have to fasten their idols with pegs so they won't totter. And you are looking to them for security? They can't even secure themselves. You have to secure them. Reminds me of a story I heard one time of the missionaries who were in a jungle area that caught fire, and as they were gathering up their pieces and running for it, they noticed a couple of the natives running by holding their idols, and they said, what are you doing? And they said, we're saving our gods. This is what Isaiah is saying. Can't you see the irony of this? 
The oneness and the incomparability of God are as old as creation and are as simple as the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So Isaiah's disputation has advanced through the obstacles and questions that Israel has raised and paves the way for the culmination of all this argument, the culminating confession in verses 28 through 31, which is perhaps the most eloquent poetry of all. And and you guys know it well. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, increases power to the weak. Even the youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now, the wrong inference from this argument of God's utter transcendence is God is too great and too big to care. The right inference is he's too big and he's too great to fail. And he's on your side. Now you could be listening here this morning thinking, oh, okay, Don, that's kind of interesting and it gives me a bit of a background into Isaiah 40, but I mean, truly, what does this have to do with me? Well, two brief observations as I close. Firstly, in times of suffering and grief and loss and trouble, those two Twin questions are universal, and I seriously doubt that there's not one person here who hasn't at least sometime argued it. God, do you see? God, do you care? A question about his love. God, are you able to change this situation? Can you, will you move? Are you able? The answers remain the same as in Isaiah's time. He does, and he can. He's a mighty, a mighty warrior who bears his arm, He's a gentle shepherd who picks up his lambs. He's able, he's willing. Don't hear, even into the circumstances that you might be facing now, a circumstance of possible severing of a precious relationship, a a breakdown of a marriage or a family, a situation where possible bankruptcy or significant loss faces you, something in your family where family alienation is just tearing you apart, perhaps a diagnosis that's been given to you regarding some sickness in your body or in the body of one of your loved ones, and you are wondering, can God do anything? Does he see this? Does he care? Don't hear the operatic note of hope that I'm singing to you this morning and then simply turn back to your prison life circumstances as if you've never heard it. Isaiah says, prepare your heart. Put the obstacles out of the way. Let the mountains come down. Let the valleys come up. Do some preparation. Learn what it is in the midst of these circumstances, not to run to the surrounding nations who can't help you, but go to the one who holds the the oceans in his hand, who can measure the mountains and weigh them, and to whom all of the other people's plans are simply like dust on scales. He knows He cares. Go to him. Wait on him. Secondly, and lastly, let me quote in conclusion from Walter Brueggemann in his book on Isaiah, because he's speaking to this situation. He says this, we must not be so enthralled by the eloquent poetry that we miss the sharp bite of faith given here. 
in our own time, it's not very difficult to identify Babylon as the global system of consumer capitalism that seems to sweep all before it, so that it has the power through its relentless liturgy, that is its advertising, to tell us what is possible. It's easy for people, even people of faith, to conclude that the creator God is an irrelevance in a contemporary system that seems to be set in stone. Let me just pause there. These people had been in Babylon for 70 years. Generations had been born. They didn't know anything other than Babylonian captivity. So when that operatic note of hope is sung, they look at the Babylon's pantheon of gods, its mighty army and its ruthless rulers and think, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. God is still silent. I mean, that, that note of hope, beautiful as it sounds, really doesn't change anything. Nothing can change this. Brueggemann goes on and says, the poet will not permit such a verdict. The one taken to be obsolete is the transcendent God who governs and whose word overrides the nothingness offered by imperial taskmasters. Sometimes as believers, we look around and think, you know what, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and we can't do a thing about it. And we feel so impotent, so alone. And all the while, a note of hope is being sung. A message is saying, prepare your heart. The glory of God is coming. And we go, yeah, yeah, heard it all before. Back to our prison lives. We're not to become Babylonians. We're not to become and function just simply like everybody else does. So that there's this kind of link, I guess, and in terms of our head with our past religious traditions, but it's not shaping our present behavior. If you want to know how to behave in Babylon, Daniel is a wonderful, wonderful study. The book of Daniel isn't just about weird prophecies. It's about how you live in the midst of a Babylonian culture and not be assimilated. A culture which, by the way, is trying to change your identity, change your names, change your, your tastes, give you Babylonian food. It's trying to make you assimilated into a system and and you, with all your gifts, serve that system. Daniel was a man who outlasted the system, and he refused to be assimilated. We're not to throw our hands up in despair and become hedonists. Well, I don't know. Eat, drink, and be as merry as you can, given the circumstances, for tomorrow we die. We are the community of faith. Hear the notes of hope. Prepare your heart. Wait on God. for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.